There's a hundred thousand streets in this city. You don't need to know the route. You give me a time and a place, I give you a five minute window. Anything happens in that five minutes and I'm yours. No matter what. Anything happens a minute either side of that and you're on your own. Casting is a tricky matter, and I'm not talking about actors. I'm talking about crew. Take, for instance, Drive. It began as a very spare crime novel written by James Salas in 2005. The film rights were quickly acquired by Universal Studios, who saw its lean plot as ideal material for a high-octane action picture. Salas' story is about an auto mechanic who doubles as a stunt driver. That's by day. By night, he hires himself out as a getaway driver. Universal hired in Hossein Amini to do the adaptation. Amini had earned an Oscar nomination for adapting Henry James's romantic novel, The Wings of a Dove. Sounds like a strange choice, period drama to action picture. But now consider Amini's other scripts that he had done until then. Thomas Hardy's Jude the Obscure, as well as A.E.W. Mason's The Four Feathers. The common denominator here is adaptation. And Amini's trick is to marry his own voice to that of the original author, so the tough literary works are transformed into workable screenplays. Amelie's adaptation of Drive so pleased Universal that they planned the film as a $60 million action picture in the vein of the wildly successful Universal franchise, The Fast and the Furious. Then, as is so often the case, the studio simply cooled on the script and the project was put into turnaround. You run a perfectly good business. I don't know why you want to change now. You know how much my business made last year? 30 grand. I can build a car in six months, and in six seconds, these jerks write it off as a stunt that won't even make it into the movie. See, all I need is a hard-use stock car. That's all. Now, I figure we start off with a small-town circuit, and we work our way up. Once we get to the show, we're talking millions. At the chopsticks, sir. Yeah. Where's the cookies? Uh, Forget it. You know, I... Forget it. So you still haven't given me a number. All right, $430,000. Then the film rights passed on to independent outfit Bold Films. Bold presented it to Ryan Gosling, whose star had risen with The Notebook and then had consolidated with an Oscar nomination for Half Nelson. Instantly attracted to the material, Gosling agreed to commit on the condition that he would have director approval. His wish granted, Gosling contacted Danish director Nicholas Vindig Refn, whose film Valhalla Rising Gosling had greatly admired. What Gosling particularly admired about the film was that Refn trusted his own unique instincts and didn't second guess how the audience might react. After Refn read the script, Gosling took him driving around Los Angeles at night, and it was during those drives that Refn began to reimagine the story. What I'm saying here is that by casting Refn as director, Drive didn't fade into the fog of another franchise. Instead, Refn redirected Amini to completely reimagine the script. If you care to read it, and it is available online, you will see that a script is less to do with dialogue and more to do with movement, and Amini's script moves through the gears like a finely tuned sports car. You pay 300 fucking grand for this piece of shit? I paid for it. Out of my own pocket. This is just a shell. 
It's the inside that counts, not the outside. Right, Shannon? You are correct, sir. Fuck that shit. I pay 300 for something. I want everybody to fucking see it. Of course you do. That Gosling bought in Reffin puts drive in the bracket of such testosterone-fueled films as Point Blank and Bullet. For Point Blank, it was Lee Marvin who approved John Borman as director. And for Bullet, Steve McQueen hired in Peter Yates. And the similarities don't end there. Both Marvin and McQueen were masters of silent acting. That does not mean that they would have been brilliant actors in the silent era. But since their films date from the sound era, there was something about their screen presence that allowed them to communicate without words. Then, when Marvin did speak, his wonderful, lived-in, cognac and cigar-soaked voice not only recalibrated the emotional tone of the scene, it expanded it as well. Listen to me. I want my money in 12 hours. I'll tell you where to make the drop. If you don't, you are dead. As for McQueen, when he played Detective Bullet, he didn't want to be the one asking the questions. So he gave a lot of his lines to a supporting actor, Don Gordon. That way, McQueen came across as the man who looked and listened, but also understood. Call the coroner's office. Tell them to put Ross under a John Doe. I want a private ambulance, unmarked, and I want it quiet. The same goes for Ryan Gosling. He knows that with doing very little, he can do so much. A look, a slight upturn at the outside of his mouth. Gosling is also like Marvin and McQueen because he uses his voice in such a soft manner. How about this? Shut your mouth. I'll kick your teeth down your throat and I'll shut it for you. Drive is a unique mix of feral violence and vivid fairy tale, and Gosling's character embodies both. His driver lives a very Spartan existence, and we know next to nothing about his past. In that way, the film hints at his mythological status. Just like the novel, his character has no name. He is a hired hand, both within and outside of the law. And through his relationship with Kerry Mulligan's Irene, we see him as a chivalrous knight who protects a vulnerable woman. Put him on a horse in a jousting arena in 14th century France, and his sensibility would hardly seem out of place. And perhaps that combination of animus and anima is best exemplified in the film's most celebrated moment. It happens in an elevator. Shooting in elevators isn't easy, and directors and screenwriters tend to avoid the location. But some films have made extra use of its limited space. Take, for instance, The Apartment, where Billy Wilder used it to signify the corporate ladder. Hi, 27, please. I drive carefully. You're carrying precious cargo. I mean, mad power-wise. 27. You may not realize it, Ms. Kubelik, but I am in the top 10, efficiency-wise, and this may be the day, promotion-wise. <laughs> You're beginning to sound like Mr. Kirkaby already. In Louis Mal's Lift to the Scaffold, a killer's escape stalls when his elevator stalls. In Alan Parker's Angel Heart, an elevator sends the detective to Hades. You got a burn for this, Angel. In hell. Christopher Nolan's Inception 
has an elevator bring you down to a beach? Surreal, yes, but quite opposite, considering it brings us to different dream levels. A week, the first level down, six months, the second level down, and the third level. It's 10 years. In Jonathan Demme's Silence of the Lambs, an entire set piece involves an elevator, where Hannibal Lecter's escape bid appears to come to an end. Look! It stopped. Seal off a 10 block radius. Give me the SWAT team and an ambulance double quick. We're going up. And an elevator is where Ridley Scott ended his masterpiece, Blade Runner. Too bad she won't live. But then again, who does? So, with the right imagination, elevators can be very cinematic spaces. How does Reffin work his elevator? He begins with Gosling and Mulligan in a hallway, Mulligan having just slapped Gosling in the face because he has told her why her husband was killed. The elevator doors open and a man emerges, but upon seeing Gosling with Mulligan, he retreats quickly, saying he's gotten the wrong floor. Immediately, Gosling suspects something is wrong. Unaware, Mulligan gets into the lift. Gosling follows. The doors slide shut and Reffin waits a few extra frames on the doors. He makes us wait almost to the point that we're expecting to hear some violence from within. But there is none. When we cut to inside the elevator, Gosling sees that the man is carrying a concealed weapon. And with that, we have an already very confined space, made even smaller, not only by the number of characters, but also by the diverging motivations. Gosling pauses, the lighting changes, making the elevator appear to change in size. This change is accompanied by an imperceptible shift into slow motion. Gosling turns and gently backing Mulligan into the corner, he kisses her. But while his kiss is sincere, Gosling has an ulterior motive. He is distracting the man from his real job, which is to kill Mulligan. Gosling draws away from Mulligan and attacks the man, beating him to the floor. The transition from care to carnage happens in the blink of an eye because once again, Reffin has imperceptibly shifted back to normal speed. Gosling kicks the man on the head, again and again, on and on it goes, 18 kicks until Gosling has cracked open the man's skull. Mulligan looks on in horror. The doors open and Mulligan backs away. Gosling looks at her. She looks at him, knowing that he has committed this violence only to save her. The doors close. Dreamy, romantic, surreal, violent. Everything great about Drive is present in that one scene. <laughs>